Hello and welcome back to the I Brew My Own Coffee podcast. We are the podcast for people who care about coffee. I am your host, Brian Bikey, and joining me, as always, my co-host, the guy who teaches you that everything is better grouped in threes, Brian Sheely. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's been a theme. How's it going, man? Dude. Long time no long see. Time. Yeah, we've been, we've both been out of town. We'll get into that a little bit. Let's, uh, let's intro the guest, then we'll talk more. Ah. We uh, have a veteran. We've got a seasoned uh, guest returning to the show. He is the jabroni with the pavoni who likes macaroni. He is Steve Reinhardt. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know how you follow that up. Exactly. Yeah, don't. I know. Yeah. So it, it's funny because um, Steve has been on technically two episodes of the show. Uh, although we, it was just one really long conversation that we ended up splitting into two episodes, episode 20 and 21, talking about manual brewing. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I actually still reference those episodes to people who ask me questions about getting started with, uh, with brewing coffee at home. And I think it's all valuable resources. So if, if you haven't listened to those episodes, go back. Well, don't pause. K- keep listening to this one. But at some point, go back and listen to episode 20 and 21. Uh, of those conversations with Steve, uh, some really valuable stuff. Good, good info about manual brewing there. Cool. Awesome. Welcome. That's to the really show. great to hear. Well, hopefully we can stretch this one out into three episodes, right? Oh man, I don't know if I have time for that. <laughs> we, we, we could we could barely we could barely sign up to uh, to actually have one conversation right. today. So this is yeah. For those who, life's crazy, man. For those who didn't listen to the the episode twenty and twenty one, Steve is the head PSL maker at Prima Coffee. Here in Louisville, Kentucky. Official title. Official title. We're gonna get into <laughs> we're gonna get into some new talks about like some gear and things that are coming down the pipeline that you can get from Prima Coffee, as well as a conversation we, we had mentioned back then, kind of getting into, which would be home espresso setup. So got kind of a manglamesh of some things, but first actually Manglamesh. A Manglamesh. Before we even talk about coffee. Let's just let's just debrief a little bit because we haven't talked in a really long time. <laughs> so it has been a while. So when we when we were gonna get to record, um, I would say, you know, on a, on a regular schedule, I was away at New York Coffee Festival. So I was and I brought my microphone and stuff just in case we did record, but it didn't play out. It was I was really busy, and then you had other things going on. Some other things going on, and then. Um, you you had traveled recently as well. Yep, I went to Washington D.C. Visited uh, La Colombe Coffee a couple times while I was there for work. So good times. Steve, where have you been traveling? <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't actually. <laughs> I've been in. But you moved. Louisville. I did move. Yeah, elsewhere so. in Louisville. Well, you're Brian. You're getting ready to move too here, or have you already moved I've, or started moving? I have. Not already moved, but we did just buy a house here, so we're in the process. Woo! Very cool. Congratulations. Okay, let's <laughs> let's do the normal thing. Let's talk about what we've been brewing. Steve, what have you been brewing lately? Speaking of La Cologne, uh, ah, yeah, I just picked up, and uh, you know, not something I would normally buy, but I just picked up their Hacienda La Esmeralda Geisha, and it oh. is delicious. As you would probably expect from that particular coffee. Um, 
Yeah, it's fantastic. I had I had like a gift card for Lachlum online, so I was like, hey, let's use it. And then I saw that they had a Geisha available, and I was like, that's the perfect thing to use it on, because <laughs> I wouldn't normally splurge for that kind of thing. And it's fantastic, yeah. It's like, it's really nice and floral. It's super sweet. It's got like a lot of lime and jasmine in it. It's so delicious. Um, and I made a brew today that was like, it finished like really sweet honey. It was just perfect. It was like probably the best coffee that I've had all week. Believe it or not, um, that was the only coffee that I ordered at both different locations that I was at uh, on my trip at Loch Lom. I had that same coffee brewed on the uh, Yama Silverton for the very first time. Super good. Yeah, and it was funny because I I ordered it as as a you know filter, and then I came back home and I started seeing it you know popping up all over Instagram, and uh, yeah, it's it was super yummy. All right, how about you, Brian? What have you been brewing? Uh, I've been brewing up the methodical Guji <sighs> Ethiopia, so I so good. I got that in this weekend, and yeah, it's really great. So I feel like I'm I feel like a broken record because I said something about it on line, and then. And I brew my own coffee recommends. If if anyone gets this selection, they'll they'll probably hear the same thing. But it had a lot of really fun characteristics that I remember from like co- memorable coffees in the past. So one of my favorite things to find in I don't even want to say a washed Ethiopian. I w- I want to say a geisha, in specifically, or even more specifically, like a Mario Carnival or something is like this nice sweet lemon uh, characteristic. And I think I noted it most in. Um, George Howells uh, either last year or the year before maybe both but um, or the San Jose Geisha so that that note was there that was kind of fun and then it got into some characteristics that reminded me of Harch Japat but not this year or last year's but in 2014's which was like iconic to me of this like crazy 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 awesome wasty Ethiopian coffee. So it had some characteristics of those. Uh, it was just really enjoyable. Floral and had some dark notes too. It was. It had a lot of complexity. It was pretty cool. So I'm still getting through that bag. I have it at the office for anyone else to brew too. So what about you? I have to drop by the office. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I've never ordered from Variety Coffee Roasters before out of Brooklyn. And I don't know why, but I just decided. Actually, I, I do know why. I was looking for coffee that comes in a box. <laughs> it, it seems to be a thing now, like you know, all these coffees coming in boxes. So I was looking for a box of coffee, and I, I was looking at Barista Parlor, and I decided not to not to order from them right off the bat. Um, and so I ordered from Variety Coffee Roasters, which I'd never done before. And I got their uh, Caratina Double A, their, their Kenyan, and it's just super good. It's, it's really sweet like candy it's got a lot of complexity tropical fruit uh, a lot of citrus brightness and kind of a juicy grape finish big fan uh really sweet do they have a, a a retail shop i don't for some reason that name doesn't strike me as familiar to when i was in new york looking around their website says they have uh three different cafe locations oh my gosh i just must have missed it then so tis the season right i mean it's uh, there it's October. I mean, the last time we talked, it was September. Now we're getting ready for, you know, Halloween and soon right around the corner, Thanksgiving, all, all the different uh, exciting fall holidays. Uh, so we've got Steve on the show and we're excited to have Steve because apparently he's spent 
four to five hours today perfecting his skills at the pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> Is that true? Uh, that's that close. Right? That's close. Uh, today was just a photo shoot day. Um, wow. I spent a lot of time working on a pumpkin spice latte, like syrup mix. Um, probably like, I don't know. It's just way too much time. Um, because the, the way that I've been approaching it is not to like make a better pumpkin spice latte. It was like, how can I make pumpkin pie in drink form? Um, and so that sounds like heaven. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, you know, short of baking a pie and sticking it in a blender, you know, <laughs> how do you how do you make coffee that tastes or at least has a lot of the key flavors reminiscent of pumpkin pie? So I, I sort of like took a step back and like tried to sort of like deconstruct what makes pumpkin pie taste good and like you know specifically like the pie that I had growing up, you know, because everybody has a little bit of a different recipe or whatever. Like you know, mine was always in a pastry crust, and I remember having a conversation with a. a a friend of mine recently who's like, oh, like ours is always graham cracker crust. Like, you know, just like store-bought graham cracker crust. I'm like, okay, I mean, sure. That's not how we did it in my house. So like, you know, I'm thinking specifically of like those pastry flavors, the like custardy pumpkin filling and everything. So like, yeah, I just like tried to break it all down into individual flavors that I could replicate individually and then remix back into like a syrup. Um, and it turns out, it turns out into this like insanely complex recipe because again, I wasn't trying to like make a better drink. If I had been, I probably would have been kind of conscious of the time that it takes. But um, you know, it involves buying a pie pumpkin, cutting it apart, roasting it, roasting the seeds separately. Um, I have you caramelize milk solids in a pressure cooker. Uh, and like all these, all these other things and you make, make a bunch of reductions and then finally mix them, mix it all back together. And I mean, Brian, you've had it. I think it tastes a lot like pumpkin pie and I'm really yeah, psyched really about good. it. I think it's fantastic. I've been, I've been inundated with, uh, seasonal drinks though. So I'm, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of seasonal flavor going on right now in my, my life. <laughs> it's one of my favorites though. My my parents are big pumpkin spice latte fans, and uh, I so I used to work at Starbucks back when the pumpkin spice latte was first introduced. You know, I was I was on bar when when all that stuff was going down, and uh, I think that experience kind of ruined me for the for the stuff that you get there. But I would certainly be interested in uh, in having another stab at it. You know, when you go and get a pumpkin spice latte. Uh, at you know, not Starbucks anymore actually, but like a lot of other coffee shops, there's no pumpkin in it, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's just sort of a you know, I guess it's kind of a semantic trick, right? Because it's not you know pumpkin latte with spice; it's the spice that you would use with pumpkin in a latte. Right. Um, so yeah, okay, whatever. Some people get kind of indignant about that, um, but the. You know, in the end, it's just like it's nutmeg, it's allspice, it's cinnamon, um, and coffee and milk. You know, um, but I did, I did want to say, okay, well, maybe let me like take that a step further. If if some people are like, let's, you know, we're not putting pumpkin in our pumpkin spice latte, and then Starbucks got called out, and they're like, okay, well, now we are putting a little bit of pumpkin in our pumpkin spice latte. Real I pumpkin to say, at that. 
Real pumpkin. Now with real pumpkin. Right. Uh, so one of the other things is like, well, I want to make a latte that's like mainly pumpkin. Like, let's just go that way. Um, and yeah, like I said, I, I think it turned out pretty delicious. And even though it takes <laughs> quite a bit longer than driving down to Starbucks and grabbing whatever they have. So one thing I was just wanting to, to get into, if we could, is talk about some options for espresso machines for home users. Can we do that? Definitely. I feel like that's a topic that, we, that we've been dancing around on many episodes before, but we've never actually tackled. Right. So this will, this will be pretty cool. I'm excited. Let's do it. And now, so one thing I wanted to, to kind of talk about, and we can, we can bring this up later on instead of right away, but I feel like one thing that you kind of want to bring up are some of the things that you sacrifice switching from, in most cases to get an espresso set up at a home level from what you would likely get from an espresso experience in a cafe. You mean they're not the same? They're not going to be the same. I would I would say in most cases you're there's going to be uh some differences. There's some there's some things that are close, but I mean yeah. I think that's that probably could be expected. It's not that you need that that same level. But so, there's a a bunch of different tiers in price, which I think Brian you and I have most uh recently uh, realized too, we both got a new product from Breville alongside of our dual boiler, which is a little bit of what kind of sparked me being interested in this because those are products I wouldn't necessarily be able to suggest or not to suggest to somebody prior. I'll just jump in real quick and mention that when I was first getting into espresso setup and in a price point, I, I generally was, I was thinking to myself, hey, if I'm going to get an espresso machine in a grinder that works for espresso, I'm probably going to need to find a machine that's like mid to getting close to higher, but not more than a thousand dollars. And uh, the two machines that jumped out when, at least in my research, was the Crossland CC1 and the um, Ranchilio Silvia. Anybody else? Can I get an amen? Something? Uh, my budget for espresso has never been that high. So. Ooh, okay. Well, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, like you mentioned, I have a La Pavoni Piccola at home, a, a vintage, it's a 1977 Italian lever espresso machine. And I bought it for $250. Thanks, so even Even the, like, nice. you know, $700 Silvia was out of my price range at the time that I got it. And I've had it for... I want to say like five or six years now, and you know it's it's been a champ the whole time. I haven't really had a desire to upgrade because you know partly because I feel like if I really want an excellent espresso, I'm totally willing to like go out and buy one. Um, but I also don't really have too much trouble dialing in and getting pretty good shots at home uh, with that machine. All right, so let's just kind of dissect then at at that price point. So what kind of things are you noticing about that machine, though, that you're sacrificing uh, to get a machine that, at that price point for home use? Well, so there's, there's certainly a lot of creature comforts that are lost with a lever machine like mine. And I should point out that they retail for more like, uh, I think, like $800 or $900, um, depending on the model that you get. So if you get a new one, you're paying a lot more than I did. But there's also, again, like mine's pretty old. There's a lot of vintage machines on the market um, that are in used or perfectly serviceable condition for $300 or less. Um, but, so, 
I, I don't have a lot of the modern conveniences that a lot of home espresso machines have. Like, I don't have a pump and I don't have a reservoir. So that means that when I run out of water in my machine, I have to shut it down fully, cool it off, I have to depressurize it, and then I can open it up and refill it. Um, so that adds probably five to ten minutes if, you know, I don't know, if I make three or four drinks, all of a sudden I have this big ten-minute delay. I don't have a three-way solenoid valve, which is what um, releases all the pressure built up behind the puck in the brew path um, once the shot's done. So it's usually an electronic valve that just opens up and shoots off all this extra pressure and water into your drip tray or, uh, you know, whatever, however it's set up. Um, And that means, and I I should point out, I guess, that that's a a feature that a lot of machines, uh, probably under... Five or six hundred dollars don't have. Um, it, you kind of have to pay up to get that sort of thing, but it is one of those things that affects the usability of the machine because uh, it means that I can't, uh, like, right as I'm done pulling a shot, I can't pull the pour filter out. I have to wait maybe two minutes or so for the pressure to slowly kind of bleed off on its own. Otherwise, if I do try and pull the pour filter out, you get what's called a portafilter sneeze that just sprays grounds everywhere with all that excess built-up pressure. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of things that kind of, they feel like they're a little old-fashioned or a little um, kind of lowbrow as espresso machines go. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm still able to pull some really good shots. So I, I think you can say that about a lot of machines in that, like, budget, you know, 250 to $500 uh, you know that that lowest tier range. Um, they probably have a lot of the same kind of failings and and shortcomings, but uh, you are still able to get decent coffee out of it at the same time. We've talked a little bit uh, on some episodes past about my previous experiences with my uh, first espresso machine that I ever had, which is the Starbucks barista machine. Um, I think Seiko Seiko Aroma. Make, I think is the, the Seiko Aroma. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, And it was sort of in that same price point. I mean, it was a single boiler. Like, getting to use that machine, you really did have to put some effort into it. I mean, a little bit more than, than you might if you just had a machine that had all the bells and whistles and things that it did for you. But I, I don't know. I kind of feel like, you know, getting used to that machine and getting to know its quirks and, you know, kind of whipping it into shape made me understand sort of the parameters of the variables a little bit more than I would normally understand them just if i had a machine that that did a lot of that stuff for me automatically it was it was a feat to pull a great shot on that machine and so you kind of felt a sense of accomplishment when things were going well yeah knowing that knowing that the equipment wasn't as maybe as great as it could be Um, i agree with you I, i think it's like you know there's there's a couple of different approaches to like you know learning to ride a bike or learning to swim or something. So buying the the low-budget espresso machine is sort of like the deep-end approach. Just, like, throw them in, you'll figure it out, right? (laughs) Because either you want to or you have to. You know, you have to to sort of wrestle with these machines sometimes, but it teaches you a lot about extraction. Um, I mean, as long as you're sort of approaching it right, I guess, you know, there's certainly potential to kind of uh, be kind of uncomfortably out of your... Uh, out of your depth and uh, just sort of be totally phased by the the complexities of espresso. But if you 
you know, spend some time reading about it and learning and kind of tasting and experimenting as you go, you can learn quite a bit um, just because the machine sort of works against you sometimes in certain mm-hmm. ways. It's it's just not as uh, not going to be as consistent or predictable as a lot of the more expensive machines with you know fancy technologies built in that make them more consistent and more stable. Right, and I think it's worth I think it's worth interjecting real quick. So the the tricky thing about a topic like this, whenever we get questions about it, is that it it ultimately comes down to like the things that you would want and the money you want to spend and there's there's nothing wrong with buying a lower end machine buying a higher end machine so you probably won't hear us say anything about that everything that these two guys are saying is true about everything that you can learn and so i feel like there's you know you, you you can get your money's worth out of a cheaper machine i just feel like sometimes as we've been talking about better quality machines begs the question of should should you wait and buy a better machine because sometimes you can't get your money out of these uh, lower end machines you know what I mean you can't get your money back out of it so those are decisions that you'll ultimately as a you know the listeners and people have to deal with yourself if that's something that you want that you're not as concerned about to to get your your feet wet to get learning and to be messing with you know with me it was to try and be able to practice uh, latte art. That that was kind of a deciding factor for me to want to get into espresso at first, and then I started to gain more of an appreciation appreciation for espresso. Where I think Brian was the opposite. He's always kind of been about espresso. So anyway, yeah. just wanted to interject with that real quick. Well, no, and I think everybody's everybody comes from different places, right? I mean, you, you some people don't even know if espresso at home is something that they really even want to make the time for or want want to really focus on and so getting in at a low price point might just you know convince themselves that yeah this is something i'm interested in or no this is way too much work i don't want to mess with it and so you know even for those types of people who and that was actually honestly that was that was me kind of toward the beginning you know i didn't didn't even really know if if espresso at home was something i'd be interested in doing but using using that older machine enough you know, I kind of realized that, yeah, this is something that I am definitely interested in and I, and I would like to make the step, you know, to something a little bit nicer. Um, that progression seems to be, you know, fairly common. And then obviously you're going to have people who are super, you know, familiar with espresso. They, they, maybe they were baristas at one point in time and they, they know that that's something that they want to have at home all the time. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't be as, you know, motivated to go for the cheaper end just to feel it out maybe maybe that would be the, the time to go for something a little bit more one of the, one of the things that you see very often at least in like so if you go online you go to like coffee geek or home barista or like the coffee community on reddit and you look at these communities and you look at how people talk about their sort of path through espresso and granted like if you're in a coffee community at all online you're probably something of an enthusiast you're not just like going to a department store and buying an espresso machine because you want one, you're probably going to look for opinions and you want to learn more, that sort of thing. But um, you hear a lot of talk of what they call upgrade-itis, where, you know, uh, like you and I, we have, like, cheaper machines to start out or something like that, and eventually we start to say, huh, like, you know, I've got a feel for this machine, 
I've got a feel for espresso, but it's just so much work to get through uh, the routine of, I don't know, like trying to find the right temperature on my boiler heating element cycle to pull a good shot. You know, do I go out and, like, buy a PID temperature controller and install it myself? Or is it worth saving, like, 1200 1500 bucks and just getting a machine that's going to take care of it for me? Something that's going to make it way easier and just get out of the way and let me make espresso the way I want to make it. Um, and, yeah, you see that you see that a lot, especially with people coming from, you know, the $300, $500, even, like, the Rancilio Silvia... You know, it's a decently made machine, but it's a single boiler, dual use machine. Meaning, it has—I think it's got a, an eight or twelve ounce boiler, which is not a lar- very large capacity. It uh, can only either pull a shot or steam at one time, and there's a really large temperature deadband. Meaning, there's a big spread in the upper temperature and the lower temperature um, that trigger the heating element either on or off. Um, So there's a really big window when you're pulling shots that might be like any of these temperatures in or outside of the ideal range of shot pulling temperatures. So it's like even a decently revered machine that costs $700 has a a lot of shortcomings when it comes to pulling shots and people want more and you, you see it often. So like, you know, at this point, I've made a lot of espresso. I work, I get to, I'm super lucky and I get to work on a Slayer when I go in the office. Um, And when I do a shift at Quills, I get to work on a Linea PB. I get to work with some really nice equipment. And even before then, I've basically said, I don't think I'm going to buy another espresso machine unless I have like a $2,000 budget because I just want something that delivers water consistently, is a reliable product, has temperature control. And just like I said, just kind of gets out of the way and lets me make my coffee. So, what do you? What kind of machines are you talking about? If you're in that two thousand dollars range, you like the rockets, or I mean, there's a lot of machines that I feel like have a kind of similar look in that in that price point, right? Oh yeah, the stainless steel boxes, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like you know, uh, there's so many. Once you get into like the one thousand to two thousand dollars range, yeah, you see a lot of machines that are basically like kind of utilitarian looking, like they're just they're fairly plain chromed uh, stainless steel or brushed stainless steel or something like that. Um, and they're very much more about like the inner workings than the overall design and aesthetic of the machine. Uh, I think Breville is the exception, although I don't know that I, you know, design is a whole different discussion, but I, I don't know that I really like either side. Where, where Breville takes a softer, consumer-focused kind of design aesthetic while somebody like Rocket or Quick Mill... Um, has this kind of harsher, you know, straight lines and very engineering um, kind of kind of design to them. Um, my own tastes fall somewhere outside of those categories, but um, you know, at, at that price point, it's kind of like looking at uh, maybe not like luxury cars, but like higher end cameras or something like that, or like you know, you you're buying mainly for performance not exactly for looks right um so yeah i mean i i confess i haven't really done a lot of researching because i just don't have that budget uh, available to me yet um but i mean like i would probably consider like an alex duetto or uh la spaziale um vivaldi or even the like the clive coffee luca 
um, you know, something, a dual boiler machine that's somewhat compact and good for like a home kitchen with PID control is ideal for me. I don't really know <laughs> really like what else. I, hey, if I had the money, I'd put a Slayer in my kitchen. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of us could say that without ever having the money. So just to expand yeah. on something that Steve said in case anyone didn't catch it or doesn't know what he's talking about. So when he was talking about the Sylvia machine, which is that $700 machine, it's a single boiler unit, as was the Crossland CC1. That's the espresso machine that I had at first. And like he said, that means that you can only steam or pull a shot at the same time. You have to bounce between those. So when you get into a machine that's a dual boiler, it's going to allow you to, like a commercial espresso machine, run both those features at the same time. So while your shot's pulling, you could be steaming your milk or getting something like that ready. And so I I don't know that the cheapest price point is this machine, but um, the machine that Brian had and Seth Mills, our buddy Seth Mills had, and then I uh, ended up getting also is the Breville dual boiler. So I I want to say it's one, it's the, if not one of the lowest price points for a pretty solid quality dual boiler machine. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. There, there isn't really a lot that can compete with the price point and the features that they offer. And I think, you know, a lot of that set is is because, you know, Breville is a very large company. They make a lot of um, appliances for home use. So they have they have the scale, I think, to be able to make and manufacture um, and support a machine like that. Whereas, you know, a lot of the alternatives are like smaller Italian companies with smaller markets Um that you know they offer a little bit more limited support and service of their machines after uh, after sale, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because a lot of them are actually made to be serviceable and use common parts. Whereas I think Breville has you know one of the reasons that people were skeptical of the the Breville dual boiler when it first came out was um, you know they're kind of the sort of company that isn't super supportive of users or customers um, servicing their own equipment and still maintaining warranty or something like that. Right. Um, and they don't necessarily make service easy. Like they use fancy like security screws or something like that. And the parts are sometimes um, proprietary and hard to find or something like that. Like there's, there was a lot of concern at the start and, I think one of the biggest criticisms with the first generation was that you couldn't even descale it yourself. So if right. you had a higher minimal or mineral content in your water, you had to send the machine into Breville to be serviced and descaled, which is seen as like in the espresso world, that's like that's common maintenance. That's something you should probably be doing, you know, maybe once a year yourself. So if you have to ship to Breville every time you have to do that, you know, once a year, that's kind of a big headache for a machine. But I think they've come around on that i don't i don't really recall um i know that the general opinion of the dual boiler is a lot higher now than it was when it first came out and that's sort of to do with the fact that breville has paid attention to coffee consumers and what their expectations and what their wants are and they're not necessarily like completely uh on the level with with what everybody wants but they've come a long way now one thing i was fortunate to enough to have in both the cc1 and the dual boiler though was a full-size portafilter so what what does steve what does your machine have is it a 58 millimeter portafilter also 
Nope. No, it's very different. Mine's a 49 millimeter. Oh, wow. Um, it's it's kind of traditional Italian um, kind of thinking in terms of how much coffee should actually fit into the basket. Because right. I can only fit maybe 15 grams maximum into my basket, whereas modern baskets, modern 58 millimeter baskets, you can usually fit 18 to 20 grams for a normal double basket. Um, but then they're even oversized and triple baskets and all kinds of things. So uh, it's not uncommon to see people pulling shots up to like 24 grams. Uh, so obviously that's quite a quite a large difference from how I pull my shots. But you know, like I said, you know the, the espresso tastes good, and I think in the end that's sort of all that really matters. And I bring that up too because I know a lot of people will will be interested if they're getting stuff for their espresso machines there's usually i guess uh, a common statement is that you will want to get vst baskets for your porta filter if you could because they're precise and i i don't know if vst only runs like standard size porta filter baskets are they just standard size um they're actually no they're vst baskets are what we would call oversized so they, they are designed for commercial size portafilters, but they're not 58 millimeters. They're, um, depending on the, the model that you get, because there's a ridged and a ridgeless version of the basket, the ridged baskets have a slightly smaller inner diameter, usually around 58.4 to 58.5 millimeters, while the ridgeless baskets, which don't have a, a crimp on the inside of the basket, for which is used for a, a retention spring inside the portafilter, um, they they don't have that crimp and that actually some I, I I guess I don't know what their manufacturing is like but it makes for a a larger inner diameter inside the basket usually up to fifty eight point six or fifty eight point seven, um, just depending on how you measure it. So yeah, they're they're a little bit larger than the um, the normal commercial baskets you might find from manufacturers like uh, Lamarzoco or Rancilio or what have you. But they don't make them in fifty-four millimeter. Right. No, they don't. They don't make them in forty-nine. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, yeah, I don't believe they make them for anything other than a fifty-eight uh, portafilter size. No, and I think that's important because you know when I had my uh, espresso machine from Starbucks, you know the the portafilter it was either fifty-three or fifty-four. I don't remember now, uh, but it was it was so much smaller than the conventional you know traditional size that it was sometimes hard to find. Uh, tampers and sometimes hard to find, you know, any kind of tools for it that you normally see around, like, you know, some of these varieties of hand tampers or distribution pucks or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, it made made for a challenge to find some of these accessories with that machine. That was kind of my mindset for a while, but then kind of going back to something I mentioned previously, um, I got to check out the Breville Barista Express. So... I was excited to see this machine because it's got a grinder. It's I think it's their lower priced model that has a grinder built in and also does espresso. So I was just trying to see how it would compare to the dual boiler. So I I know that it doesn't run it doesn't have a dual boiler. It's a single boiler. It's a 54 millimeter portafilter, so I know that I would have some work to get in espresso or I'd have to change how I normally would dose espresso but it's kind of an all-in-one so for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to have to budget for a grinder and a machine this comes in at a price point of like 600 bucks and I was 
I was pretty pleased with the results. I think I was even more pleased with the speed at which it turns on was ready to start pulling espresso. So I did find it to be a little bit of work to get enough coffee in the basket. I'd, ha- I'd fill it up and then I'd have to kind of level the basket a little bit and maybe knock it down a little bit in order to put some more coffee in. And then finally I could tamp it with, again, like you said, you can't find really accessories outside of what they the manufacturer provides. So I have to use just the uh, tamper that they provide. But uh, I was getting some decent quality. I was actually getting pretty good quality espresso. I was kind of running side by sides with the dual boiler. And I was happy with those results. And the milk steaming, now it that's one thing I think if you have a machine that steams milk, you start realizing that the lower you go in quality of machine, generally the slower, not always, but generally the slower it's going to go in steaming the milk. And for, for newbies, that could be kind of nice because it allows you to... to to take your time texturing the milk and not just blow up your pitcher and end up with a mess. But at the same time, it, it does take a long time to steam your milk. So either if your shot's already pulled, then it's setting up. Or if you're steaming your milk first and you go to your shot, then your milk's probably going to set up by the time you get it ready for your espresso too. So those are kind of like some of the the things you deal with a machine like that. But again, for $600, bucks, um, I was... I was, I'm pretty pleased with that machine. So here's a question that, that I know I see a lot online. Maybe, Steve, you can provide a little bit of insight for it. What would you say is more important, the quality of your espresso machine or the quality of your espresso grinder? So I, when, when I was first learning espresso, uh, I was very into coffeegeek.com, and I think there was like a little mantra there uh, that says the grinder makes the espresso the machine just adds water um and i think you know up to a point that's really true i think that the there's a good reason to prioritize your grinder especially with espresso i mean espresso is probably the single most finicky way to brew coffee there's a lot of ways that things can kind of go wrong on you and produce lackluster results um and you know if if you have uh, let's say you have like a Lamarzoco top of the line, like a Linea PB with the auto brew ratio or something like that, and you pair it up with, I don't know, uh, a Rancilio Rocky, which is a, you know, it's a decent home espresso grinder. Um, it's, I think it's like 350 bucks or something like that. Um, and apologies, I don't remember all these prices off the top of my head. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's a modest espresso grinder for home. And you probably would have a really hard time pulling shots on that machine with that grinder. Um, there's, it, it's just gonna kind of, it's it's gonna be the snagging point. And honestly, you know, there's a lot of ways to make hot water and push it under pressure through a bed of coffee. And a lot of them are simple and a lot of them are kind of cheap. So I would much rather suggest that people focus on their grind quality, which is going to, I mean, in a lot of ways, they can make or break a shot. If your grind is really uneven, you're going to have a hard time even building up pressure to uh, get what we would typically call an espresso extraction. Um, If you have a lot of fines being produced, um, you're going to have sort of a muddy cup quality. You're going to see some over extraction that could be better addressed if you had a better grinder. Um, and even some of those cheap grinders, like they just really, they aren't really capable of grinding for espresso because they don't have 
the fine-tuned adjustment. And you'll see, like, you know, uh, pretty much um, the the most revered espresso grinders are what we call stepless. They have infinite settings to choose from um, on a very fine scale uh, to choose what grind size you want for your espresso. Because, uh, like I said, espresso is very finicky, it's very picky, um, it, it turns out that a very small change in grind size can have very noticeable effects in the cup of coffee that you drink. So you want a grinder that is not only capable of grinding fine enough for espresso, but also being uh, uh, also capable of um, making small enough adjustments that you can really dial in your coffee um, and not have to worry about the grinder being uh, that weak link in the chain. It's kind of fun- funny because when I when I was using that uh, Starbucks barista machine, um, I had it paired up alongside the uh, Barazza Preciso, and I, you know, used it a lot, and finally discovered that you know it probably was not the the grinder to be switching back and forth between filter and espresso <laughs> like I was attempting to do, which might just be a whole other discussion about you know buying a dedicated espresso grinder versus trying to to use a grinder between filter and espresso. Um, but all I did in in kind of the the biggest step I made. Uh, toward better quality espresso at that time was actually investing in maybe a more proper espresso grinder. And I guess I suppose I went overboard. I, I bought one of the Maycap grinders. Um, and I mean, it just almost immediately, it changed the quality of what I was getting out of that machine and the consistency of what I was able to pull out of that machine. And I, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I, I had no capability of cleaning that machine because it was just it was not in good shape uh i i might even still be using it i paired paired with a better grinder it it really did a great job um, I, you probably don't need to go buy a you know, malconic peak grinder for your for your <laughs> ranchilio to make a difference but uh, but i would say i mean if you're going yeah. from even a, a barazza and you switch to the peak you'll you'll notice a pretty significant difference um don't tempt me to get a peak. You should get a peak, Brian. <laughs> everyone so, should everyone uh, should have I'll, a peak grinder, I think. <sighs> Stop it, guys. Um, but no, I mean it's it, it you know there there are distinct differences between the the coffee produced by different grinders and I think, you know, um, as you kind of work your way up, you'll see some pretty dramatic changes. You know, there's there's a very big difference between I mean, my first espresso grinder was a Hario Skirton, a hand grinder, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had to modify it to not have so much wobble and produce a little bit better coffee. But going from that to the Barazza Preciso that I work on at home now, well, not now. I'm currently using a Sete, which is fantastic, but it's Prima's. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the, the Preciso that I own, you know, and, you know, if you were to go from a skirt into the Preciso, you'd notice a huge jump in quality in your espresso. Not only is it yeah. easier to kind of tweak your settings and, and change uh, your grind size to actually get the results that you want, but it's also much clearer uh, flavors and much better body on your shots and not quite as much over-extraction as I saw with the skirt. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of... I mean, geez, there's tons of grinders on the market to choose from, but um, 
<clears throat> I think generally, as you move up in price, you'll start to you you will see pretty distinct changes in quality, increases in quality. So, what do you think about the sete? So that's a that's a tough question. I don't have I don't have a retail sete. I have a pre production sete. Um, yes. So as do I. And I I think uh, the three of us have kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, but like mine is uh, my espresso range. When I first got it, I ha- I took it all the way down to a one, and was still pulling shots in like eighteen seconds. It just wasn't fine enough. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a shim for the burr um, to buy a little bit more uh, fineness for espresso adjustment. Um, but the cup quality is great. You know, since I did that, I, I can pull shots at like a 13 now. Um, just pairing the sete with that Lapavoni, it's a fantastic home setup. You know, I'm, I'm pulling shots that might be a little bit harder to actually dial in um, than the mythos one and slayer that we have at prima but the flavor is just the same it's just as good it's hard for me to believe that it is doing such a great job at the price price point you know until you start really hear hearing from other people who have similar experiences and there aren't a whole lot of people out there yet who've who've gotten to use right. one um and and you know like you said to be honest i mean a lot of a lot of us are using pre-production models anyway um so i'll i'll continue to be curious to hear about you know people's actual experiences with them at home you know but i've i've been super impressed so you know you say that the more you spend on a grinder the better quality it can be this seems to kind of combat that slightly um, oh sure yeah there there are kind of like jumps and uh like sort of fringe cases uh, throughout that range. Um, you know, like, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about hand grinders a little bit, and hand grinders are a fantastic exception to that because uh, you can, by basically just getting rid of the electrical components of the grinder, and if you're willing to grind by hand, which for espresso is a little tough sometimes depending on the grinder, um, if you're willing to grind by hand, you can save a lot of money and get really excellent grind quality for it. So, like, we, we currently carry the Orphan Espresso Lido uh, as well as the, the Knock Feldgrind, and both of those are really good espresso grinders. Um, they're both stepless. Um, the, the Lido has a really nice sort of somewhat aggressive burr set um, that makes it a little bit easier to grind, um, especially for espresso, but the grind quality that you get out of it, I mean, honestly, I think it rivals the sete. Uh, and, I, you know, before the sete came out, I, I was saying that it was slightly beating the Precisa, which goes for, uh, I think, about $40 more than the Lido does. So that's not a huge jump, but the sete now is, um, oh gosh, it's like $100 more, I think. Um, well, in the Lido, they have the Lido E now, right? That's even yeah. a finer adjustment for espresso. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a finer thread pitch. So you have basically like one revolution on the adjustment wheel is a much smaller change. I don't remember how much smaller, but... Um, so, like, with a normal Lido 3, I haven't really seen much issue in terms of dialing in for espresso and making those, like, fine tweaks. Um, but, you know, if you feel like you want to dedicate that grinder 
to espresso use and you want to have, you know, if, um, you know, the width of uh, your pinky or something is is normal adjustment for tweaking your espresso and you'd rather have it the full length of your thumb or something for the same change, then the Lido E is perfect for you. And, it, you know, it, it buys you a little bit more wiggle room and uh, less risk of, you know, accidentally taking it too far in one direction or the other as you adjust. Um, but yeah, I mean, both of them, you know, the, the Lido's construction is fantastic. And again, you know, if you can kind of get away with grinding by hand and don't mind the lack of convenience of a motor, hand grinders are really like, that's a, it's a fantastic way to save some money and get a really great grinder. And there are just so many awesome products out there right now. Too. I remember when my, when my, uh, Preciso went belly up on espresso, and I had nothing at home to grind with except for a, uh, a Hario Slim Mill Mini. So I, I I did the thing where I, you know, attached it to my power drill and ground for espresso that way. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, I did the same thing know, with my uh, skirt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, grinding for espresso, you know, on a hand grinder can be quite a, quite a laborious task, uh, but... I, I did actually get great results even from doing that, so it, it can be done. One thing Steve was mentioning about um, people going up in price, this, this is getting away from grinders going back to machines, though, but when we were at New York Coffee Festival, we were able to use the La Marzocco Lenia Mini setup, and then uh, Prima came through, and they let us use the Oh shoot! The peak grinder, and then we use the Malgit tamper, and um, so the buzzer and the dozer. And <laughs> I know this is not practical for like anyone's home setup, but it was probably the most fun espresso setup I've played on ever. Um, and so going, can I so ju- going back, can I just tell you how jealous I was oh every gosh. time you would post a photo it was of that? So- it was- Ridiculous. I was jealous, and it I saw that stuff. Setup. So, but one thing I realized, because some, and I br- I bring this up because somebody just asked me. I, I posted a photo recently, and someone asked me, "Hey, you know, how's the Breville dual boiler? I'm thinking about getting that or saving up for a Linea Mini." And so, if someone's already considering it, I feel like it has to be said. So, going back to what Steve said about people not necessarily going uh, buying in a more expensive machine for its looks, but because of its uh, like consistency in, in its in what it can do. Now, the Linea Mini is a gorgeous machi- machine for one, but two, the combination of all those pieces of equipment was so consistent. That Linea Mini the entire weekend was so consistent. We switched to a peak at our Baxter Avenue shop just right as soon as I I came on board with Quills and. The quality of the espresso, uh, like, changed. I thought dramatically, and to, like to the point that I was like, "Oh my gosh, I think I love our espresso." And so, using those two together was already great. But then adding the Malgit stuff um, in there to kind of groom, and then you know, tamp. I just, I couldn't believe how enjoyable it was and how consistent it was pulling shots. For people on the machine now, Steve Prima's Prima Two is the is you all the only place that people can get those in the U.S. Right, the Malgets. 
I think so right now. So what are the what are these mythical devices that you keep talking about? <laughs> um, so what are they? Uh, I just wrote a blog post about this last week. So basically, um, we're starting to see a lot of these like puck style tampers and tools for espresso. Um, it's sort of a departure from your standard tamper, which is like a flat metal piston usually and an upright wooden handle of some sort. Uh, the puck style tampers get rid of that handle and instead incorporate some kind of like puck style top and the the reason that you like use that puck top is because uh the underside the uh, the outer rim of that puck basically serves as a leveling device when you tamp so you can change the piston's depth usually by some kind of screw um and when you tamp down you just push straight down and then the puck makes contact with the whole surface of the basket top and keeps your tamp level every time. So when you're doing like a trade show or even working on a commercial bar, that means that every single time you tamp, unless something has gone horribly wrong, every single time you tamp, it's level and consistent. Um, so the Malga, uh, the there's a couple of different like manufacturers addressing the same kind of design style and things. Um, Malgats are a screw style so there's two uh, there's basically an adjustment collar and then like the adjustment nut which is the top of the uh, the tamper as well as the piston so the the nut and the collar are the same diameter and they lock against each other and then you can unlock them just by unscrewing and then screw the piston in or out to change the depth and then lock it in place by screwing those two pieces together so um, they have the buzzer, which is the tamper, and then the dozer, which is a distribution tool. Um, so they do sort of the same thing, except the distribution tool doesn't tamp for you. Um, although you can use it as a tamper, but that's a whole, like, I don't know. That's not really practical for most people. Um, <clears throat> so the the distribution tool basically just grooms pretty much like the upper half to third of the puck. Um it's a little complicated to just explain by by uh, like verbally talking about it, but um, basically there's like a series of ramps, and as you spin the device, the ramps kind of push the coffee uh, radially as well as kind of down. They compact a little bit, um, so that helps redistribute the upper portion of the dose of coffee. And again, because that collar is hitting the basket. It's put. It's pushing it in a level, and or I'm sorry. It's pushing in and leveling at the same time. Um, so there's not. It, uh, that's not necessarily something that everybody needs. And with a peak, I I sort of question um, how necessary it is because the peak produces a very fluffy centered cone of grinds already. But with something like a I don't know, like a super jolly or um, like uh, just a Mazer grinder with a doser, or even the coffee isn't necessarily dosed very uniformly in the basket. A grooming tool like that can really help um, improve your extractions because it it reduces how much disparity, how much change in density there is throughout the puck. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but it's an easy one. You just kind of drop it on top, give it a spin, and then tamp. Really easy to use, and you know. I think Brian, you can speak to even even under pressure when you have a line of people waiting for coffee. It doesn't add that much time to your production at all. 
you know, there are techniques out there that, that help you distribute evenly the coffee into the portafilter, but it seems like tools like this are growing in popularity, maybe just because they, they take some of that guesswork out of it, I guess, or make it just real easy to do for even people who, I don't know, may not be familiar with something. Oh, absolutely. Thing. Yeah, and it's, it's really, you know, it's a very elegant solution to um, the, I guess, the problem. It's not necessarily a big problem, but it is something that could be improved and fixed. You know, when you're starting to look for those little things that give you an edge in your espresso production. I really see it as more of a commercial tool. Um, not that it doesn't have a place in a home setting, but it's really the the consistency angle, I think, is what it, it's its best advantage as a, a tool, you know, an item that you can buy. You know, there's a return on investment when you're uh, talking about a cafe that's going to serve more consistent shots thanks to a tool that adds maybe one second to production time. Um, but, uh, you know, at the home, you know, if you... If you're like me and you you have a uh, a couple of grinders at your disposal that maybe don't produce the most beautiful grounds in the in the basket, um, I just use a cake tester, just basically a small stainless steel stick. You know, like you could use a, a paper clip, an unbent paper clip, um, <laughs> to do the same thing. I just stir my grounds and break up the clumps and kind of distribute them a little bit better. So if Malgut made a dozer in 49 millimeters, I would be all over that because I don't want to have to stir my grounds anymore. Well, even uh, Lynn Weber uh, makes a couple of different tools for that type of distribution problem as well, um, like the HG1 sort of uh, distribution tools. And they also, I think they also have a shaker where you can you know, actually take your grounds and shake it up in this little stainless steel cup thing. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of ways that people have tried to figure out this problem. Like Basically, the, the, the issue is just that, you know, not all grinders are going to give you a uniform, fluffy mound of coffee that's directly centered in your basket, which would be the, the ideal way to deliver coffee into a basket before tamping. Um, because once you introduce water under pressure in your basket, um, it's going to find the path of least resistance always. So you want a a uniform density, you want a level tamp, you want to give the water as few opportunities as possible to, like, make its way through that coffee um, in an uneven way. If it finds, like, a little channel of weakness, it's going to... It's going to take advantage. It's going to bypass the rest of the coffee, and you're going to get kind of an off-balance shot or worse, you're going to get a really watery, uh, horribly over-extracted slash under-extracted. <laughs> See, my dog agrees. He's so concerned. He's very He's so concerned about espresso. Very worried about consistent extractions. Steve, don't forget, don't forget to talk about water and the path of least resistance. <laughs> One thing that we haven't touched on: um, an espresso machine is a machine. It is a device uh, that has a lot of components inside of it. And it requires maintenance, and people kind of forget that part a lot. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you have uh, certain machines need to be back flushed regularly, um, most machines, or pretty much all machines, need to be descaled at some point. Um, there's a lot of cleaning required, um, and really, like if you don't keep your machine clean, 
not only will your espresso start to taste bad, at some point it's going to die. Um, and, you know, most people don't want that to happen. You know, they, they would like their, their machine, their espresso machine, to stay around for a while. Um, so that's sort of like why, you know, when I mentioned the whole idea of user serviceability, you know, yeah, you might buy a machine that has a two-year manufacturer warranty, but if it has common parts um, and you're a little bit handy, you can open it up and check if there's some kind of problem down the line. But for the most part, like, you want you want to consider the fact that part of espresso machine ownership is going to be maintaining the machine like you might maintain your car. You know, sometimes you need to take it into an expert, but something like changing your oil, you can do that yourself. Um, so there are certain things that uh, you should plan on doing on your own when you buy an espresso machine um, to make sure that that machine has a decent usable life and doesn't fail on you. And, you know, if you're lucky, like me, you have a 40-year-old espresso machine that works just fine. Um... I'm sorry, 50-year-old espresso machine. Uh, so, yeah, like, I, I guess it's something that people don't really consider because they think of their other brewing equipment. I mean, even a drip machine needs to be descaled from time to time, but they're a lot simpler in construction. You know, they don't. a lot of drip machines don't even have pumps. Um, so, I don't know, it's, it, it's kind of a... An issue where, like, oh, well, I have a V60 and I have a uh, Bonavita kettle and blah, 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 and I don't have to even think about maintaining them because they don't really break. But an espresso machine, if you don't care for it properly, can completely destroy itself and become unusable. Um, so, yeah, just just something to think about. I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of stuff you can look up about maintaining and uh, cleaning an espresso machine that I don't need to get into, but you know, maintenance is required. I, which is a great point, by the way. I mean, it's something that we don't, I don't think about enough. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, people ask me, people ask Brian, people ask, you know, other people online about machines and, and different features and all these other things. I mean, there's, I can count on one hand the number of espresso machines that I've been able to use at any length. And that's not a very big, you know, breadth of experience. You know, where where is somebody going to go to really get kind of an idea, you know, to do the research, to, to figure out what machine is best for them at their budget with all the different considerations that they have? Like, what what kind of resources are out there that you, um, that you know? Well, of? I think we've kind of touched on a few at this point. So, uh, there's a lot of forums about coffee. Um, there's the coffee geek forums, home barista, um, the coffee community on Reddit is also really great. There's also even like, I think the Gaja user group on, um, Usenet still exists if you search it. Um, so you, you can dig up information that way. Um, there's also a few like, um, internet communities abroad like there's coffee snobs um out of australia i think there's a couple other um sites as well but obviously if you're searching in the u.s market you might want to kind of pay attention more to those u.s centered resources um so there's a lot of information online you know some of it's a little bit overly geeky or overly nerdy and maybe um a little bit much for more casual um espresso you know uh consumer um 
But there's a lot of good information, and a lot of those places are actually very helpful if you post your own questions. But also they also uh, they tend to have resources built for like frequently asked questions and that sort of thing for people who are just kind of finding their way and just exploring uh, the territory of espresso at home. Um, apart from that, you know, uh, you know, at Prima, like we we have tried to put together a lot of resources to inform people about espresso. You know, they tend to be pretty centric to the products that we carry and and offer because you know that's what we have available. Espresso machines are expensive, even if you're uh, selling them to people. So we don't necessarily get our hands on a lot of the things that we don't sell. Um, so I can't really comment on, like, Breville espresso machines, except for what I've seen and read around the Internet, because I haven't had much hands-on time myself. But we do produce resources. We put out videos. Um, we have some guides on just general espresso stuff. And, you know, so do uh, the other people who do kind of what we do. So, like, Seattle Coffee Gear does a lot of videos on their machines, uh, a whole latte love does the same thing. Uh, I think Clive has done some videos and other content for their machines as well. So there's, you know, the places that sell equipment often have resources, um, as well as you know, you could just kind of pick up the phone and give them a call and ask your questions. Um, you know, our our people at Prima like that's that's what we're here for. We like to answer your questions. We like to help figure out what's um, going to help you get the best coffee in your house at your budget. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of resources, um, a lot of really great information online. Um, and I, I guess the the one caveat that I would say is that if you go to the like coffee communities, sometimes they can be a little bit insular and kind of echo chambery, um, which isn't to say that they're not welcoming of new people, but they tend to like repeat the same ideas. So if you want to get a broader sense of what's out there, you might want to visit more than one. All right, Steve. All right, Brian's. We're gonna call it. And I, I want to thank you for being on with us again. This one, this one, I imagine will probably keep as one length. Um, but I don't know if there's anything new that you want to plug, or if you just want to revisit how people can find you or find Prima after this episode. Um, well, let me just say it's been a pleasure coming back and chatting with you guys again, and. Anytime you need me, you know where to find me. Um, so Prima Coffee, you can find us at primacoffee.com. Um, if you want to check out our like learning resources on espresso and stuff, you can just go right over to our blog or primacoffee.com slash blog. Um, we just published an article last week on the Malgit tools and puck tampers in general. So if you're eager to learn a little bit more on that, it's up on the website right now. And there's a nifty little banner on the front page you can click on. Um, me, you can just find me at Steve Reinhardt on social media stuff, but I don't always talk about coffee things. Sometimes I talk about crazy pumpkin spice latte recipes <laughs> and post it to Instagram. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find us at Prima and me at Steve Reinhardt. Excellent. Well, again... We appreciate you being on. If anyone has any other questions too, feel free to drop any of us a line or just like comment uh, anywhere online. Um, we do that. Hashtag IBMOC talk sometimes when people want to talk specifically back to us. Other times you just comment on photos or tweets or send us an email and that's fine too. And if there's something we need to pass on to Steve, if you don't get in contact with him yourself, you're afraid or you want to ask us about stuff and keep in mind we're kind of limited on what we some of the stuff that we know but um we'll try and help as best 
as we can. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the I Brew My Own Coffee podcast. You can find us on Instagram at I Brew My Own Coffee. You can find us on Twitter at Brew My Own Coffee. You can check us out on our website at ibrewmyowncoffee.com. If you want to send us an email, ask us a question, uh, click the contact us link at the top of the page. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in, and thanks again to Steve for being with us. Until next episode, happy pulling, everybody. Pull it like it's hot. Is that- pull, pull shots and drink them. That rhymes, right?